Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I hope your day's been going great. I've been thinking about you all day, because now it's our time to be together. And thank you for joining me. And if you um, uh, listen to the show, like in the evening, because you like the podcast, that's even uh, cooler. That's cool as well. So thank you for doing that. I just hope that you are um, uh, having the kind of day that I think we all can have where we go out and try to uh, let people know that we've got a joy and hope in our heart and that we are a a different kind of people that are willing to uh, stand up for what we believe and to tell people about our hope that we have in Christ and to share the love of Jesus with everyone. So I've got a great show. Rob Blue is going to be joining me. I'm always glad to have Rob on the show. He's the executive editor at The Daily Signal, and I always encourage people to head to dailysignal.com to check it out. Rob, welcome. Hey, Bill, it's good to be with you today. Thanks for having me. And thank you for making time in your schedule. I know you've got extra... uh, extra heavy workload on your plate right now. So, you know, I very much appreciate you. Well, thank you, Bill. And, you know, my colleague, Doug Blair, who was on with you last week, is the one who's really got the heavy workload this week because he has been all over the Washington, D.C. area going and tracking the protesters, the pro-abortion protesters who are making their way to the houses of the Supreme Court justices, those five justices who have signed on to the draft opinion, which would overturn Roe v. Wade. And so Doug, uh, this weekend and even last night, uh, his, has been spending his evenings doing that. So I'm, I'm glad I can spend a few minutes with you to talk about his good work and, uh, and what we've been able to document. Yeah, of course, Rob. And I saw Doug on TV the other night, and he was uh, talking about being at the, at the homes of the, of the justices. And he said he can't remember a time he was that frightened. Oh, yeah. Well, and if you watch some of the video and you can follow uh, Douglas K. Blair on Twitter or go to the Daily Signal and, of course, watch these. It is uh, the, the individuals that he speaks to and, and uh, who are, are there protesting and carrying the signs. Uh, they don't mince words, Bill. They are there to cause a disruption and to send a, a message loud and clear. They um, frankly don't care that it's a residential neighborhood or that it's a Saturday night or a Monday night. Uh, they are going to continue to do this, I think, with the sole intention of trying to intimidate one of the justices to drop his or her name from that opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we are calling on the Supreme Court to issue that that draft opinion as quickly as possible. And many people expected it to wait until to, to be announced before the leak in, in the uh, last week of June. But I worry that that's a long time from now. Uh, here we are almost you know, two months away from that. And I think that the sooner that that opinion is, is publicly released, the, the better off uh, will be. That way it re- relieves some of the pressure that uh, the justices are probably facing. But also uh, the fact that it's already out and somebody took the steps of leaking it, uh, why not just make it official? Yeah. And Rob, why aren't there protesters out at some of the other justices? Just because you might hold a liberal position and you might be in favor of supporting Roe, uh, settling uh, law is is law and they're nonpartisan, right? So Ruth Bader Ginsburg said this is bad law and it should be changed. So might there be one of the liberal judges agreeing with that position? 
Well, <laughs> you know, until we get a final ruling, we, we won't know, of course. Bill. Right. But I mean, certainly, uh, I'm glad you pointed out the Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, comments on this, because I think people need to recognize that there were people on the other side of the spectrum who just said, like, look, <laughs> uh, agree or disagree on, a, on abortion. Uh, the, the reasoning and the rationale that the court used in uh, the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 was was not um, not good at all. It was not sound judgment. Uh, there is no right to abortion found in the con- U.S. Constitution. And so you, you have several people who, who conveniently want to ignore that right now. I think, I think that the three left of center liberal-leaning justices on the Supreme Court are unlikely uh, to, to come to that, that conclusion, although there have been some surprises of late uh, where justices, including a, a case uh, not, not too recently on, on free speech, uh, where nine justices um, were all in agreement. So uh, I just think that this one is probably not the decision where you'll see that. Mm-hmm. It is going to be uh, interesting to see how this uh, all um, turns out. Uh, I think everybody's kind of bracing themselves. I mean, could there be a little bit of a civil unrest as a result of this? In- well, I think so. Uh, I, I think, you know, maybe, Bill, if there's any any benefit to come from the leak, uh, it won't come as a shock in that last week of June. People will have had time to right. absorb and digest this. Uh, you've already seen a lot of states, whether they are on the pro-life side or the pro-abortion side, uh, coming out with legislation. And so we are going to have this conversation again. We don't know when the court will ultimately issue its ruling, but uh, I, I'm hopeful that we can we can protest peacefully and we can do so in, in public spaces and not private neighborhoods and things of that nature. But uh, but yeah, I think that it's personal for a lot of people. They uh, they want to to gin up uh, a political reaction. Of course, uh, the, the Democrats recognize in looking at polling that they are in grave danger of losing control of Congress. Uh, the House looks like it is clearly uh, going to go Republican in the November elections uh, by anywhere from twenty to fifty seats. I mean, it could be a huge wave, or it could be just a, a little bit of a ripple. Uh, the Senate um, has several key seats in play, and remember now. The Senate is tied 50-50. The Democrats have a narrow majority in the House. If Republicans regain control of Congress, uh, this will be much like it was for President Obama's uh, first term, where the first two years he was able to get a lot of things done, and the second two years he resorted to using the uh, the phone and the pen <laughs> yeah, right. to get things done by executive order. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, not to be de- depressing about inflation and food prices, but this continues to get worse, and I've heard that when farmers have to start paying for fertilizer, that prices in the fall could be even worse. Well, that's what that's what we're hearing from uh, the experts as well, and in talking to people who are are in the agriculture business, uh, absolutely, this is uh, the the ripple effects of, of this are going to be felt for a long time. President Biden was out today making a, a speech uh, in terms of uh, the concerns about inflation. You'll recall, Bill, that uh, President Biden talked for most of last year about inflation being transitory, really trying to dismiss it as a serious concern. And I think they've finally recognized at the White House that uh, this is not going away anytime soon. And if you look at the volatility of the stock market and you look at uh, the rising price of gas every time it seems you get in the car and drive down the street, uh, it's something that's on the minds of, of a lot of people. But I think the the big impact is, is not necessarily those types of things, as, as detrimental as they are. It's when you go to the grocery store and you start to realize that everything that you're trying to buy is significantly higher mm-hmm. uh, than, than it was uh, even just the previous time you may have been shopping. And, and you're absolutely right. That's because it takes energy 
to produce food. And, uh, and it, it's going to hit farmers and they're going to pass along that cost uh, to consumers at the end of the day. And so we're in for uh, some sticker shock. I think that's one of the reasons why you see the polls uh, reflecting uh, support for Republicans the way they do. There's a lot of frustration that in Washington, there may be a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. And <laughs> here we are yet again, uh, we're having this conversation, Bill, and we're talking about spending even more money. It seems like the requests never stop. Uh, and I point to two factors that are causing the inflation problem. Number one, it's the, the $6 trillion and the, the more money that they wanna keep piling on top of it that they've spent in just the last couple of years. It's an incredible amount of money and it's just driving inflation uh, crazy. And then secondly, the Federal Reserve is not helping matters. They were slow to act and they don't appear like they're, they're really in control of uh, what's going on. So I, I don't know how, um, how President Biden is going to fix either of those, but I think that there's a growing dis, uh, discord among the American people that things are going to get worse. When it involves a person's wallet, that seems to be the issue that always rises to the top of the heap. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, it certainly does. I mean, we've been talking about the economy as the most important issue uh, for as far back as I can remember I in politics. Of course, Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush uh, was the centerpiece of the 1992 presidential campaign. It's the economy, stupid. Remember, I Bush did, yeah. was painted as somebody who was completely out of touch uh, with uh, with the American people on that. And uh, and even um, even in the the good years of uh, when we had a, a you know a surplus in, in government, uh, you know it was still still a factor. Uh, it was certainly a driving force in President Obama's presidential election in, in two thousand and eight. So uh, yeah, you know it's um, it's a big issue, uh, and I think that people can look back not too far, uh, agree or disagree with President Trump uh, and some of the the politics that he brought to the White House. His policies, in, in many respects, uh, were, were very popular because they, they helped more people get into the workforce. They lowered the cost of, of energy. Uh, they put a focus on, on you know, American manufacturing. And so all of those things, I think, have started to, uh, to, to vanish. And frankly, I think people are, are, are longing for somebody who's, who's in Washington who can return and, and maybe bring some, some foresight to how we get, get ourselves in a better position and let's face it, one last point on this, Bill, as we see uh, the, the economic numbers come out and we, of course, got the report on Friday, there are still a tremendous number of open positions in the marketplace and not enough people to fill them. And so, you know, if you're looking for work right now, uh, you have plenty of choices. I think the question is, you know, why aren't more people wanting to enter the workforce? That's a really good question. And even though there's plenty of jobs available, there are not as many people not only willing to fill those, but then with uh, inflation hitting, you're not you're not getting uh, as much return as you were a couple of years ago on the well, job. Well, that's that, that's that's a great point. Yeah. Um, y y you are you are are certainly not. And uh, anybody who's had a raise earlier this year probably is not getting a raise in the range of eight percent. And for the, for those of listeners out there who are, who are, congratulations. Uh, but we know that, you know, in the past, you know, a cost of living increase or a standard raise would be in, what, the 3 to 4% range. So, yeah, Bill, it's, uh, it's hitting people hard, uh, that's for sure. And, uh, and, then, and then we have on top of this, we haven't gotten into it, the supply chain problem and the fact that, like, you can't find baby formula anywhere and, and you know, other things that you typically could go to the grocery store and expect to, to pick up, you know, no longer on the shelves. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's exacerbating in, in ways, big and small. Rob, I got to be honest, I was enjoying this interview until you told me I wasn't getting a raise. 
<laughs> Nobody is, <laughs> unless our employers are, are generous enough to, you know, to outpace the cost of inflation. That's for sure. All right, let me t- take a break. If you have a question for Rob Bluey, you can text it over to me eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. He's got his finger on the pulse of things, so I bet you got a question. Again, eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. You're back. belongs to Rob Bluey, and last week we used it for Doug Blair, and we confused some listeners. Like, where's Rob? And I got a nice <laughs> got a nice note from uh, Nancy, who just said, "I so like s o o o o o." I appreciate the work of Rob Bluey and the Daily Signal. I make it a point to tune in every Tuesday at four. Thank you. And then another uh, listener said, "I was just at Hardee's, and they didn't have any fries at all. Talk about supply panic." Wow! Yeah, I have not I've not heard that one yet, Bill. But yeah. uh, but maybe potatoes are in short <laughs> supply too. Jeez. And then uh, John wants to know. Please ask Rob. Shouldn't there be an investi- an investigation to determine who leaked the Supreme Court preliminary draft and then be held accountable? Yes, and so uh, some of my colleagues who are are much more knowledgeable about the Supreme Court than I am say that the individual who leaked it, the draft opinion could certainly be held accountable, and they've outlined some steps that Chief Justice Roberts could take. Uh, starting with asking every clerk or person who would have possibly had access to it to to sign a a document attesting that they were not the leaker. I I think that you may find that uh, if somebody is is put in a position, uh, they may fess up to doing it, although who knows. Uh, But yeah, we can absolutely take steps. Uh, it, It appears that the draft opinion was printed um, so, you know, the technology today exists where apparently you can look at the micro dots on the printer and maybe identify where, you know, narrow it down in terms of like where it was printed from. So there are definitely steps that, uh, that we can take. I want to stress how unprecedented this is. Not uh, in any time that I have been covering Supreme Court cases, and I, one of my first jobs in Washington, Bill, was actually to go inside the courtroom and to cover the, the court. It was one of the most stressful <laughs> uh, reporting assignments I've ever done because you're put in this, this side room. Uh, you're in the courtroom with the judges, justices, but you can't actually see all of them. So you have to identify them by their voice. Um, and then you uh, basically uh, have limited amount of time, you know, in, in, in terms of filing your story afterward, because you're in this mad dash to, to, to race against everybody. So not in any of that time that I've been following the court, have I ever seen an opinion leak out in advance? Uh, mm. It shows what's at stake in, in this Dobbs case. And I, I do certainly hope that somebody is held accountable because it could certainly damage the internal workings of the court if they cannot trust each other. Yeah, I think we've talked about this before, Rob. It seems like that community of clerks would be relatively small, and they'd be able to find that person relatively quickly. Yeah, yeah, you certainly think so. Uh, But uh, I'm also unclear as to how many people might have access to the draft. Uh, And so, you know, that's that's one factor that that I just, that's one data point I don't have have knowledge of. Uh, But this is, again, I think why it's, it's so important. I mean, for instance, Bill, if 
if the draft substantively changes between the time that it was written and that draft was written in February uh, to the time it was, was leaked on, on May 2nd, um, and, and when, when it's officially issued, I mean, I think that we might know if the, the pressure campaign worked. And so that's one of the reasons why we're saying get it out as soon as possible so, so the justices don't find themselves in a position where they have to confront this on a, on a daily basis. But I also uh, have to give, uh, give credit to uh, the governors, the, the, the law enforcement, who are in some cases, you know, probably spending around the clock, uh, providing around the clock coverage to make sure that the justices are safe and, uh, and and escorting them to and from their home, it's um, it's a situation where you know you think about the president and the Secret Service and all the protection that goes into it. And I think probably prior to this leak, uh, you'd be surprised about uh, about the justices and the fact that um, you know they could they could pretty much freely move on on their own, but not anymore. And I think that that's sad that we're now living in a country yeah, where they have to fear that. Mm-hmm. Rob, I have a question about election integrity. What do we know about the upcoming election and anything that's in place uh, regarding election integrity? Yes. Well, we do know that several states have taken action already and others are still uh, going through their state legislatures trying to make sure that the midterm elections are as safe and secure as, as possible. It's a big debate. Um, and it's one that's not necessarily isolated to just one side. Uh, you had a little bit of a controversy in the last couple of days because the incoming White House press secretary apparently may, had some tweets uh, from, from her past in which she was questioning the validity of the Georgia governor's election in which Stacey Abrams was defeated by Brian Kemp but refused to concede and, you know, maintains that she's still the rightful the governor of Georgia. So, you know, it's uh, a lot of people point to Donald Trump and uh, the complaints that he makes uh, about the 2020 election. But we have to remember that there are there have been vote. There's been voting voter fraud that's aided Republicans. The ninth district of North Carolina not too long ago was a, was a case in point. And there have been uh, Democrats who have complained about unfair elections. So I think that it's critical that we get it right. So nobody, whenever they are uh, heading to the polls, uh, has any doubt that their vote is going to, to count as they cast it. And uh, until we get to that point, I can tell you that uh, my colleagues and I at the Heritage Foundation aren't going to rest. And it's one of the reasons why we put together the election integrity scorecard. So your listeners and other Americans can go and look and see how their state uh, ranks and, and stacks up against others. Uh, we provided model legislation to lawmakers in case they want to take steps to improve uh, their elections. And uh, you better believe that it's going to be an issue, uh, given how closely divided we are as a country, uh, that could determine uh, some key races this fall. Rob, what effect will big tech and censorship have on our upcoming election? Well, I think it'll have a, a, a big effect. In fact, <laughs> you know, as we're talking about uh, elections and, and big tech, it would be remiss not to tell you that uh, President Trump spoke at a Heritage Foundation event last month. Uh, the, the video, we posted the full 82 minutes on uh, the Heritage Foundation's YouTube channel. YouTube yesterday removed the video. They took it down and gave us a strike on our account uh, for a couple of words that President Trump said about the election being rigged. And so, I mean, big tech, to me, that's big tech, uh, you know, putting its finger on the scale. Uh, and, and of course, uh, we had news breaking today, just shortly before uh, our interview, Bill, that Elon Musk has said that he will allow Donald Trump back on Twitter if the sale goes through. Uh, he said uh, that, uh, that that would be one of the things that uh, he makes sure to put in place. Now, Trump has said he doesn't want to go back on Twitter, so it may be a moot point. But I think that when you live in a, in a country where, where a platform like Twitter allows uh, the, the Vladimir Putin and the, you know, uh, 
Ayatollah Khomeini and other people, you know, who have, uh, you know, much uh, less reputable um, behavior than President Trump, I think it, it question, you have to ask yourself the question, you know, is big tech trying to put its finger on the scale? And I think in too many cases, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've got a million thoughts going through my head right now, Rob. You got me all wound up. Um, but I've got some other questions that are coming in. I want to address these from uh, listeners. Uh, a listener would like to know if you know anything about the uh, the Dinesh D'Souza movie, The 2000 Mules. Regarding I do. Ballot stuff yeah. Or- yeah. I, I've had the I had the privilege of uh, doing a, a, a screening of that uh, before it uh, was in in theaters. Uh, you know, so uh, it was. Uh, it, in fact, um, going off my last point, it's it's one of the reasons that I think President Trump's video was pulled down off of YouTube because he referenced that movie as as evidence that the election could uh, call into question the election. So. Uh, that that is uh, it's a powerful film. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza is uh, is somebody who really tries to walk you through what happened, not only with with uh, in some cases uh, states improperly changing their election laws, but then showing and what he means by mules and the two thousand mules are the individuals who would go and collect mail in ballots and then drop them off in bulk at these, uh, these drop boxes and uh, doing questionable things. Uh, they've caught it all on camera. They're using cell phone data to trace their movements. It's, uh, it's a powerful film. And uh, that's no, one of the reasons why I think the, the president is touting it and showing it at his rallies. And so we had a piece bill by uh, DeRoy Murdoch, a syndicated columnist that uh, we published on the Daily Signal. And your, your listeners can go check it out. It's a great review of the film. And again, it <laughs> comes back to big tech. We shared uh, DeRoy's piece on our Facebook page, and Facebook uh, took it down and said that uh, they weren't going to, they weren't going to let uh, Facebook users read it uh, because they had a fact checker uh, come in and say that they uh, disputed some of the, the claims uh, made in the film. And so even a movie review <laughs> is now not acceptable for people to apparently read. Hmm. Rob, I want to talk about, maybe we'll talk about this next time we, we chat, but th- the whole idea of, of mis information. I, that is a word I struggle with because that's what we do all day every day is we read st- something and then we decide if it's true or not or if we want to investigate it to find out its source. I mean, we've been we've been navigating our way through misinformation our whole life. Oh, absolutely. And uh and <laughs> who gets to decide that- what's what is and what isn't? Well, and that's why I think it's it's incumbent upon the individual, you, me, your listeners, uh, right. to make those decisions and not a big tech platform or not somebody who's in Silicon Valley who thinks that they know better than you and I uh, what information is out there. Now, obviously, it's ch- it's more challenging today because we are bombarded and consumed with so much more information in our in our lives. But I think that's why you and I have talked in the past about the importance of having a balanced media diet, not consuming right. all of your news from one source, not getting it all from social media. And so I think that there are steps that we as individuals can take. And yeah, we could probably spend a whole show talking about misinformation. Yeah, maybe we'll do it sometime. Rob, thank you for taking the time today. I always look forward to having you on, as do my listeners. Thank you, Bill. Have a great week. You bet. Thanks. Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. We are going to take a little break. And then uh, Dr. Alex McFarlane is going to join me. And we're on a roll with Alex. I can't wait to share with you what we're going to talk about. You're going to learn that in a couple minutes. When all my days were through, I called my baby and asked him what she would do. I mentioned movies, but he don't seem to dig that. And then he asked me, why don't I down to his flat and have some supper and let the evening pass by by playing records beside a groovy high fly. I said, yeah, yeah. 
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. You just joined me. Uh, you missed a great half hour with Rob Bluey. You can always go to MyFaithRadio.com if you missed any of the show, and I encourage you to do so to go find out what you missed. Say, this month, we're having this really lovely giveaway, May His Face Shine Upon You. It's a devotional uh, bundle giveaway. So this is Susie Larson's uh, new book, and you can get in on the drawing, and you can win two copies. And you'd win one for you and one for a friend. So the way you do that is to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Just so you know, we're giving away one bundle of these books every day this month. How cool is that? And they're lovely books. I have one myself. So you can enter to win again at MyFaithRadio.com. I was glad to have Dr. Alex McFarlane on. He is an evangelist, an apologist, an author, and a guy who is uh, in the know. Always glad to have him on. Alex, Welcome. Well, thank you, Bill. I appreciate the chance to be on. How is your day going, my dear friend? It's going fantastic. And, you know, last time we were on, and the last couple of times we were on, I I wanted to talk about some theologians and philosophers from the past, guys that I know you like and and authors that I have liked, and they're they're quite dead right now, which makes them even more attractive to me. But well, um, yeah, I was thinking about this. The, the last time you and I visited, we talked about Spurgeon, didn't we? We did, and I have to tell you, listeners love this. And I thought, well, I want to continue on with this for a little bit with Alex because I know the next person I'm going to ask him to talk about, he's going to know. Uh, I, I hope so. And by the way, folks, uh, Bill and I, we don't rehearse or we don't <laughs> script this out. I mean, this is just extemporaneous, and I believe led by the Spirit. Don't you? I couldn't agree more. But I want to talk today about Jonathan Edwards. Oh my goodness! Yes, Jonathan Edwards. I have I have a Jonathan Edwards story. I may have told it on this, but um, let's hear it. Yeah, let's, the, let's start with great, that. You know the 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 great preacher of uh, the the first great awakening. And um, Bill, did I ever tell you the story of when I was in Connecticut and I was trying to find Jonathan Edwards Church? No. Uh, Okay, this sounds like a joke, but this is honestly true. So during the summer of 2000, so 22 years ago, May 20th through July 8th of the year 2000, I preached in 50 states in 50 days. I honestly did. Wrote a book about it. Actually was on the news with Dan Rather. Um, It was called The Tour of Truth, and we had nine college students, and uh, we did 64 services in 50 days. But anyway— So we were going through New England, and I was in a place uh, in Connecticut, and I was looking, and nearby is a little town called Concord, Connecticut, where Jonathan Edwards preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, he was, if I recall, like a 28-year-old pastor, and he was uh, afraid that a lot of his parishioners were not believers, and so he preaches this fiery sermon. Many people probably studied it in high school literature, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so, you know, this amazing revival breaks out, and ultimately like two-thirds of all the colonists accepted Christ. And and there were others like George Whitfield, you know, and uh, the Wesleys, of course, and there was a man named Shubal Stearns. I mean, there were a lot of 
great evangelist. But, you know, if you think about Christianity in the colonies, I mean, the kind of the iconic name is Jonathan Edwards. So I'm in Connecticut, and I, I said to Angie, my wife, I said, let's drive over here to Concord, Connecticut. Oh, my goodness, we're going to see where Jonathan Edwards preached. And I just, Bill, I assumed that, you know, there'd be a Jonathan Edwards souvenir stand. You know, certainly <laughs> everybody would love this iconic mm-hmm. leader. So we go, it's a quintessential little New England town, and it looks like, you know, a Norman Rockwell painting. So there's a little tiny post office. I go in there because I think he'll know. So I go in there. Postmaster says, may I help you? I said, hey, listen, we're from out of town. Where is Jonathan Edwards' church? And he goes, uh, is is he a pastor? And I said, well, I mean, he was 200 years ago. And, and the guy, he goes, what are you doing looking for a pastor from 200 years ago? So I'm trying to explain. And as I'm talking, I promise you this happened. A, a, a priest comes in, and the guy, the postmaster goes, hey, father, father, this guy's looking for Jonathan Edwards. And the priest says, well, he's not in my parish. And I said, uh, no, guys, no, this guy lived sinners in the hands of angry God. They'd never heard of him. And two or three people came in, and we asked. And I was like, no, this guy preached right here in your town. And God sent a revival, and two-thirds of all the colonists on the eastern seaboard became believers. And they were like, never heard of him. Wow. And I'm like, wow. So they said, well, go to the public library. So we went to the public library, and we go to the desk, and I said, listen, um, do you know anything about Jonathan Edwards? And the lady said, you know, there's an old, old librarian, and she might know. Long story short, uh, it took quite a bit of investigation, but we found the church, and we went there, and there was a little granite monument covered in weeds, and it said, on this spot, and I think it was like 1748, I'm thinking, Edwards preached a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But here's what I thought about, Bill. Right there at, I mean, ground zero for the explosion of the First Great Awakening, nobody even knew about it anymore. And I thought, you know, we've got to re-remind every generation about the great things of God. The other thing I took away, whatever you do for the Lord, do it for the Lord. Because, I mean, you know, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We, we don't do things for the praise of man or accolades, because I thought, you know, if, if, they, if they could forget Jonathan Edwards, heaven help the rest of us, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, we did find his church, we saw the place where Edwards preached, but uh, yes, that's a famous name that we, we should not forget, I think. I agree. That's why I want to talk about him today. And he uh, entered Yale University right before he turned 13. Yeah, he was a prodigy, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, not to mention he was the third president of Princeton University. He was. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. there in New Jersey. Yeah. You know, most of us at 13 have just learned to tie our shoes, you know. <laughs> Edwards is entering Yale at right. 13. Right, exactly. So let's talk about uh, a couple of quotes, and we can t- discuss them. This is one I love. Resolution 1, I will live for God. Resolution 2, 
if no one else does, I still will. I know. I love that. I, I've I've used that quote before. Um, that should be our our heartbeat. Um, do you remember there was a song, Bill? We we don't sing it in church near as much as we should anymore. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Mm-hmm. There's a line in that song that I'm told was inspired by Edwards. It says, "Though none go with me, I still will follow." Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. That's what Ed, Edward says. I've, um, I have determined to follow Christ, and even if no one else follows Christ, I will follow Christ. That's conviction, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. How about this uh, quote from Jonathan Edwards? A true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an accidental thing. It is his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ. Amen. Yeah, amen. Wow. I, I mean, you know, we—don't get me wrong. I love the American church. I love the USA. But the American evangelical uh, culture of the last few decades, not always, but often it's like, um, yeah, the gift of salvation— Lay it on me, but the responsibilities of discipleship, you know, I'll I'll go there just on an as needed basis. Mm-hmm. But you you've got to understand for for many of the generations that preceded us, I mean, full out obedient surrendered living, that wasn't just an option for the spiritual few. I mean, that was Christianity, and. Um, I know salvation is not by works, but yet if we truly are saved, our life ought to look different. And and for the the Christians of old, I mean, it, it was expected that you, if you say you're born again, you better live like it. Right. And it wasn't just grace, 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 grace with no obligation. And And, you know, Bill, the sad thing is if you talk about um, mortifying the flesh. If you talk about surrendering, sometimes people say, oh, so you're a legalist. No, not at all. But we're not uh, to be people of license either. So when you read a quote like that, like the business of the Christian is to be like Christ and holiness, to our modern ears, that sounds radical. But to previous generations, that was just the normal Christian life. I was saved so that I might serve and grow and surrender. That's so true. Dr. Alex McFarlane is my guest. We're talking about uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, philosopher. I love this uh, quote from Jonathan Edwards. Um, When God is about to do a mighty new thing, he always sets his people praying. That's for sure. Yeah. That's kind of like Luther. Um, Somebody said to Luther, uh, you're the greatest reformer that could ever be something along those lines. And Luther said, no, the greatest reformer of all will be he who sets the church a praying. And Edwards was right. And and I think in our own context, you know, people say, oh, you know, we need a great move of God. And, and I, I think we do. Our nation needs a revival. Just like the battle over Roe versus Wade. I mean, it's it's merely whispered that the Supreme Court might rescind Roe versus Wade. And 
many people are just indignant about that. We need to pray for the Spirit of God to subdue evil. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. And we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to turn hearts toward truth and life. But like Edward says, you know, God doesn't do a great work um, unless his people, the church, start to pray. And Bill, let me just say this, because I've, I've been so blessed to be a part of a few revivals. Folks, um, you want the presence, the power, the work of God? Of course, pray. But I will say this. When the body of Christ unites, it, it like unleashes the power of God. And I know there are denominations, and they're Baptist and Methodist and Pentecostal and Assembly of God and Presbyterian and uh, Catholic believers. Look, I know the body of Christ is this big tapestry of a whole lot of different critters. But let me encourage you, reach across the aisle and pray together. When and believers, you know, we, we agree on Jesus, the Savior. Bill, I've seen I've seen it when when the church unites their hearts, their voices, their prayers, God shows up. That's fantastic. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. We're talking about Jonathan Edwards today. He was born in 1703 and died in 1758. He was an Mm -hmm. American preacher, philosopher, and theologian. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back, continue our discussion on Jonathan Edwards with Dr. Alex McFarland in just a minute. So glad to have Dr. Alex McFarland as my guest. We're talking about Jonathan Edwards, the Reverend Jonathan Edwards today, born in 1703, died in 1758. That's only 55 years old. What an impression he left. So uh, I love I love talking about him. Um, mm. Alex, here, here's one that always gets my attention. Uh, Jonathan said, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. Yeah, Wow. Wow. You know, um, there's an author that I love, a modern author named Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T. He's a brilliant apologist and worldview guy. He basically said the same thing. Kreeft said something like, um, you know, modern man demands truth in every area of life except uh, when it comes to his soul, the state of his soul. Kreeft says, you know, most people would rather go through life thinking they're a good person and be mistaken than be confronted with the truth that they're not a good person. They're actually a bad person, but redeemable. And um, we do. Isn't it funny how we, we can judge others so harshly, but we really give ourselves a pass? And that's one of the brilliant things about Edwards. I mean, he, of course, intimately knew the Word of God. He has been called one of, if not the best philosopher produced by the USA, and certainly, and I've, I've got a number of um, biographies, it's been said he was 
probably the most astute philosophical thinker in the colonial uh, era, but he knew that, you know, we we talk about hell and people believe it, but they are they reassure themselves that they wouldn't go there. Now, I know this is something that people don't preach about much anymore, Bill, but the Bible is very clear. Jesus Christ, the 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 tender, gentle Jesus said, you know, fear him who don't Jesus said, don't fear the one that can kill the body only, but fear the one that after you've been killed, has the power to cast you into hell. In other words, fear God. Um, By the way, on the subject of hell, Bill, and I know most people don't preach on it, and uh, most ministers don't, but it's in the Bible, and just as there are great promises for heaven, there are great warnings about hell. But Edwards, this is one of the quotes I saw, where speaking of the subject of eternal condemnation, the fires of hell. He said, tis dreadful, tis awful, but tis true. I mean, it's in the book. Mm-hmm. But somebody asked Edwards one time, you know, if, if God is love, how could anybody possibly go to hell? And Edwards said, if even one sinner were saved, then the mercy of God would have been eminently demonstrated. I mean, when you think about that, you know, we've sinned. I'm a sinner. I'm a saved, forgiven sinner, but I'm a sinner. We've known the right, we've done the wrong. I mean, Bill, have you ever wondered, you know, people fault God. They're like, well, if God is love, how come some people don't go to heaven? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, my goodness, God is a holy, righteous, just God, and many people do go to heaven. We we question God's judgment. Why don't we equally praise him for his mercy? Can I also add another Jonathan Edwards line based on what you just said, Alex, and that's this. The door of God's mercy is thrown wide open, and Christ stands in the door and says to sinners, come. Oh, wow. Isn't that beautiful? I think so, yeah. You know, um, I had the privilege this morning, Bill, of uh, doing a Zoom call with some students that are starting a club. We, We started a club ministry called Viral Truth, Viral Truth Clubs. And by the way, if you want us to coach your high school or college students on how to start a viral truth club, we we send out, we call it a one sheet, where we, we take topics like, you know, did the early church practice socialism? Or, you know, would, would Jesus attend a gay wedding? We try to, and, and the questions for the viral truth clubs come from teenagers and college kids, but email me, alex at alexmcfarland.com. Alex at alexmcfarland.com will help you guys start a viral truth youth worldview club. But um, sometimes people ask this, you know, question, why is Christianity so exclusive? I mean, you you say Jesus is the one and only way to go to heaven. That's rather narrow, isn't it? And I'll say, you know, really, well, first of all, Jesus taught that Jesus was the only way to get to heaven. But Christianity is very inclusive because he opens his arms, like Edward says, and says, whosoever will may come. I mean, that's the most inclusive faith system because Christ says whosoever will. Isn't that great? Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Another, there, there's, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just another quote because we're, we're 
getting short on time here, and I want to get a few more out here. Edward said, you all have by you a large treasure of divine knowledge in that you have the Bible in your hands. Therefore, be not contented in possessing but little of this treasure. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd never heard that quote before. Bill, I'm so indebted to you. This is Now I'm going to go home and pull out all my Thomas <laughs> Edwards books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, we've all got this incredible treasure. You know, uh, Edwards was uh, involved in education. He was one of the presidents of Princeton. And um, this reminds me of William Lyon Phelps, who was one of the presidents of Yale University. We did an event at Yale back in '04. Took Josh McDowell, Ravi Zacharias, Norm Geisler, Lee Strobel. Um, took a lot of great speakers to Yale. But William Lyon Phelps, somebody was talking to him one time about, uh, must be great to be the president of Yale, and wouldn't it be great if everybody could get an Ivy League education? And William Lyon Phelps says, well, as much as a college education is valuable, even more important is a Bible education. That's kind of like what Edwards was saying. Don't let this treasure trove of wisdom go to waste. Mm-hmm. That's so, so good, Alex. I love this line from Jonathan Edwards, resolved never to do anything out of revenge. Wow. wow. That's not the world we live in today. Oh, my goodness. People can be vindictive and uh, retributive, but no. You know what? Um, there's another quote, resolved, and I thought this was the quote you were going to share. Um, he said that he would never do anything that his conscience was uneasy about. And, you know, what's interesting is that uh, Edwards was, to a degree, influenced by the Wesleys. And, you know, here are uh, Edwards that, you know, was more Calvinistic and the Wesleys that were more Arminian, and I don't want to get into a theological discussion about that because I think there's truth in both of those. But, um, you know, the Wesleys were really big on the habits of holiness, and the Edwards quote where he said, resolved never to do anything my conscience is uneasy about, um, that that's a good word for us. And this, you, you may have come across this, uh, Edwards once, and it was almost like he was, I think, maybe just journaling to, you know, encourage himself. But he said, um, if something is questionable, um, would I do this or that thing if I knew that before the end of this day I would meet the Lord? And he said, since I don't know, you know, before midnight tonight, I may meet the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, any of us, he said— if I'm uneasy and under conviction, if I, I don't have peace about something, since I don't know, I, I might meet the Lord before this day is out, then I'm not going to do it. In other words, he, he seemed to really, by word and by example, he kept a watch over his heart, didn't he? He did. And I think I have the quote for you, Alex, and that's this, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Yeah, that's the one. Good. Hey, good good job. Well, you know, when I read things like that, I'm convicted, you know, because I, I mean, these guys, they took seriously what it meant to be a disciple. And I, I listen, I'm preaching at Alex here, Bill. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I think sometimes we're a bit cavalier 
regarding what it means to be a disciple. Um, here's a question. The, these these giants of old, like Spurgeon and Edwards, that we look back and study, what, what do you think their take would be on the modern American um, flavor of Christianity? I think they'd be rather shocked. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine, and let me just say this, I mean, the the very idea that some pulpits would be talking about gay marriage mm-hmm. or, or uh, you know, transgenderism or ev- even things like evolution or uh, moral relativism or lawlessness mm-hmm. or the obscenely immoral welfare state that really, uh, you know, confiscates earnings and redistributes them. I got to tell you, you know, I, I think a lot of these guys of old, they would they would preach a message that most modern pastors would slink away in embarrassment. Yeah, I think you're right. Alex, it, it was no game to them. Yeah. That is all the time we have. Thank you for being with me today. I'm looking forward to keeping this up. This is really a lot of fun. God bless you guys. Uh, Bill, uh, you and Faith Radio, you guys are wonderful. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Alex McFarland. You can learn about him at alexmcfarland.com. After a short break, I'm back with Jeff Verdorn. We'll continue in the beginning series. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.